Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist. With me, your host, Chloe Timms. This week, I'm talking to Isabel Schuler about her historical novel, Lady Macbethad. Isabel is a Swiss Hawaiian American actress, writer, and former bookseller. She has a BA in journalism, and her screenplay, Queen Hereafter, was longlisted by the Thousand Films Screenwriting Competition in 2019. In 2020, she adapted Queen Hereafter into her debut novel, Lady Macbethad. In this episode, we discuss the themes of gender and ambition that inspired her novel, how she turned a 60-minute pilot episode script and TV Bible into a book, and what it's like to be confronted by bad reviews. But first, here's Isabel with an excerpt from Lady Macbethad. In the end, it did not take two days for Finlich and my father to reach their decision. On the evening of Crinin's arrival, it was announced that Finlich had released me and I was to be betrothed. There goes the next Queen of Alba. I read the thought in their eyes and tried to return it with one of my own. I will be a great one. I will make you proud to say you live in the kingdom of Alba. Macbeth had remained unmoved by the change in my status. He did not speak to me and had only one-word answers for Duncan, whom he avoided as much as possible. I matched his indifference with a callousness of my own. Who was he to resent my destiny? Donalda's sadness over our growing animosity elicited the only remorse I felt. She had wanted more for our relationship, and while I knew this was the only way forward, I felt sorry that I could not fulfil her desire after all she had done for me. She was particularly attentive in the last days, fretting over me as any good mother would. She chose which clothes I would take with me to Dunkeld. She bought me delicate trinkets attached to thin pieces of leather to hang around my neck, and little pins from the craftsman in Burghead to ornament my cloak. I would miss her deeply. Lying in bed the night before my departure, I found myself unable to sleep. I tried out Queen Gruach, speaking it quietly under my breath to see how the words sounded. They both thrilled and terrified me. It did not seem quite real. I wished my grandmother could see me now, her prophecy unfolding. Though I was certain this union with Duncan was my destiny, I tried out a different name, more foreign but more fitting. I repeated it softly to myself, speaking it into the night, feeling the shape of it in my mouth and the taste of it on my tongue. Lady Macbethid. 
Hi, Isabel. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to have you on me today to discuss your debut novel, Lady Macbethad. Thank you. I am so excited to be here. So can you start by telling us what Lady Macbethad is about? Yes, Lady Macbethad is a book about power and passion and drive and ambition. And it centers on the life of Burke Ingenboat, the real Lady Macbeth. Um, and it is set against the backdrop of medieval Scotland and kind of takes place all over the place. So it's this real sweeping historical fiction. I was so amazed when I started this book because I literally had no idea of the origins of Macbeth. I studied <laughs> it at school and yet I don't remember ever being taught that there was like a a real basis of the story. Mm. And, and I'm reading it at first thinking, Isabel's this incredible, I mean you do anyway, an incredible imagination, but so I'm thinking to make up these characters, <laughs> think about it and think there's something real about this. So tell, yep, us, nope. <laughs> <laughs> tell us where you heard about this story because I know that you grew up um near the Oregon Shakespeare Festival so you've always had kind of Shakespeare around you and in your life from a young age what was it about this story that kind of grabbed you out of all the other Shakespeare stories yeah well I mean I'd I'd seen the play at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival as I, I saw most of most of Shakespeare's plays um which was quite which was definitely a gift but it wasn't until, because I, I have a background in acting as well. I sort of started professionally acting when I was about 13. Um, and it was in an acting class um, and an acting situation in which I first I first came across the text of Macbeth in any kind of real way, um, just in, in playing her. And then I also had the chance to play her when I was in my early 20s in a short film. And so those those few experiences that I that I had kind of more intimately with the character, I was able to pick up on some of the things in the text um, that I just found uh, really problematic. There's a lot of the kind of the most prominent one being that there is a lot of gendered language around ambition in the play, Um, especially kind of the first time we meet Lady Macbeth. Shakespeare's Lady Macbeth. Um, she's found out that her husband has received this incredible prophecy that he's going to be king. And her first, <laughs> I love it, her first thought is he's not going to be able to pull this off, um, which is really amusing. Um, but then her, her kind of follow-up thing is that she prays to the gods to unsex her and to kind of take away, she says, drain me of human kindness. Um, and fill me top to toe with direst cruelty. And not that I'm advocating for that, but there's this sense of um, kind of kind of needing to strip yourself of everything that makes you a woman or certainly the you know society's expectations of womanhood, which there's something in that. but but for her particularly, um, kind of the fact that her womanness would get in the way of her sort of single-minded ambition. And as an actor, I think you have a unique um, job with a lot of Shakespeare's female characters to bring to life someone with, with integrity and to, and to make sure that you, you know, if, if you don't believe in the character or if you are judging the character, then that's really going to hamper your ability to be able to play her empathetically and authentically. And so suddenly all of these these problems become a lot, a lot more real because you kind of think, okay, how do I how do I get over this? And how do I imagine this character in such a way that that allows both for what I understand 
women to be and what what she would have understood that um and so you know so so you do the job and and I did um but as the character she never she never really left me um and for people who know the play well there's a lot of kind of lore around it um it's quite a superstitious play there's got the witches in it and so um I kind of like to think that the spirit of Lady Macbeth never never truly truly left um because she knew she wanted her story to be told so yeah that was that was kind of how I first came to the story and also why her story in particular really really grabbed me at that time and kind of yeah, it kind of stayed with me until until I wrote this. Yeah, I can absolutely see why. And then that inspired you to write this TV pilot, um, oh, which is yes. the initial kind of, I guess, the Bible before you'd written the novel. <laughs> At what point did you decide, actually, I'm going to transform it into a novel? And what was the process like for doing that? Because I imagine it's very different from being a, a kind of a script and a concept to then becoming this huge novel. Yeah, it, it it really is, and actually, I'm, I'm really glad I get to talk about this because, um, the uh, I, I think first of all, when when I say I wrote the TV show, I, I did. I wrote a 60 minute pilot, like a, a first episode, and then I wrote a TV bible, um, which is just this massive document that kind of is almost like the blueprint for the TV show. So it gives you all the characters, it gives you character arcs, gives you the themes of the show. Um, and then it gives like an episode breakdown for each of the, you know, for each of the episodes. It kind of says this, you know, here's the script, but here's what happens in episode two. Here's what happens in episode three, four, five, six. So in a way I had mapped out the whole story. However, um, I think as is to be expected, the TV pilot is very, very different from the book, not just it, like like in, in plot, but also in theme. Um, I didn't have, you know, there, there was, there's so much in the book that I, that I didn't have in the TV show um, because I was writing specifically for TV. So I also kind of had almost like a producer's cap mm-hmm. on. So we actually never see, see Gruach as a child at all. We meet her sort of at the end of her time at Dunkeld when she's 17 and we follow her for maybe four or five years, which is the sec, which is only the second half of the book. So the whole first half of the book, I hadn't even, I hadn't even thought of until I had to sit down and write it. And actually, in terms of why I decided to novelize it, um, it's a really sort of a boring, practical, um, practical reason, which was that we were pitching the script around and everybody really loved the story and was really encouraging, but also said, you are a first time screenwriter and this is a huge budget <laughs> historical, you know, period drama, like your best case scenario is to sell the idea to someone you might not even get like a creator credit and you'd have no control you know it would you would just sell you would sell the idea you'd have no ownership of the intellectual property and actually you would be far better off writing this as a book um and it's funny because that's that story in particular kind of lives in my head as something specific because um and I don't, I'd have to check with my agent now, um, but I'm happy to sort of add to the lore around this, this story, but which is that one of the companies that we pitched it to was Natalie Dormer's production company. Oh, wow. And I think the producer, I, I'm pretty sure, I do remember this, I remember this conversation. Um, it was a very busy time in my life, 
but they had really liked it. And I, the way that I think I had interpreted um, what my agent was saying is that Natalie Dormer loved it, but she thought it should be a book. So I was like, oh, well, if Natalie Dormer tells me to do this, I'm 100% going to do this. <laughs> I think it was possibly more a general trend of what producers were saying. But in my mind, Natalie Dormer told me to write a, write a book. So, so I did. <laughs> that should be yeah. the, the, you know, the, the title page of the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Inspired by Lady Macbeth and Natalie Dormer. <laughs> no, um yeah so so then so then actually getting to getting down to it and and writing it as a book was was a real it was a real shift i think one one of the things when i was writing this the screenplay because i wrote the screenplay in i think yeah late 2018 early <clears throat> early 2019 and then i didn't sort of sit down to write the book until october of 2020 and i had done a big wave of research in the in the first instance when I obviously when I was writing the tv show but there were all sorts of things that I was like oh the production designer can figure that out or oh the costume designer can figure that out and I remember sitting down to write the first chapter and I I wrote like she I wrote she walked across the and then I was like wait I don't like is this dirt is this wood is this stone like (laughs) I have no idea what the material world of this woman looks like um, and so then I did another, like I had to do kind of a second wave of research, um, which I thought was kind of a one-off and, and I can talk about this later, but actually it's worked out that way with my second book as well, where I did a big bout of research and, and then did a first draft and now I'm, you know, have done a second bout of research. Um, but that was kind of for, for Lady Macbeth, that was when I really filled out the, the world of the story so what they you know what they would have been eating and, and where they would have been going and 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 kind of invariably in in doing that I also just dug deeper into the history because uh you know with books that you don't get in film so much is you you can just expand the world mm. um so much more and I think the real I remember the real moment when for me it finally switched in my head from from a from a script to a, to a book and kind of I saw the excitement and the potential for that is I had the idea for the prophecy so the prophecy is not in the pilot but um, Lady Macbeth when she's about five years old receives this prophecy um, that she interprets uh, it's not actually saying this but she interprets it to be that she will one day be queen um, and it very much mirrors the prophecy that Macbeth gets in the play and once I got once I kind of had that in place and, and had the character of her grandmother. And, you know, with meeting her at five years old, it's then that the kind of, I got really excited about the novel and kind of the scope that you could have with this woman. And actually the fact that you could do her, you could do her more justice in in a novel than you could in a, in a TV show. I love this idea of you getting this second flash almost of inspiration that helped develop the idea of a more. I, I kind of think of it like, when you're doing multiple drafts of a novel and then suddenly on draft four you come up with an idea that then reshapes Mm. I'm sure there are people listening that can relate to this that you're kind of wading through and then suddenly something occurs to you and you think why haven't I thought of this you know Mm. when I was first drafting it but um I love that idea but also I imagine that writing the novel as opposed to the script you really had to inhabit the character a lot more so can you tell us about Grok for us mm-hmm. did you um how you kind of went from the research and the the bible that you created to then fleshing her out into this fully rounded character for the novel 
Yeah. Well, it's interesting because there were, I came to it. uh, Yeah. I had all the research. I had my own personal background and then I have the, the character that we have in the play and the things that I really love about her, her ambition, her single-mindedness, and some of the things that really don't mesh in her character. I think there's this real transition that happens, you know, in the, in the middle of the play where she goes from this very controlled kind of with it woman. And then, you know, from one scene to the next, she just completely falls apart and it makes absolutely no sense. So there were these things that I, that I wanted to bring to the character just from a, from a personal kind of from a personal perspective and one of them um one of the facets of her character I mean I could tell tell you about how she's you know ambition and simple-minded and driven and passionate and you know and has this kind of unbridled desire (laughs) um but for me a really important facet of her character is she's quite emotional she's really emotional like you know and she never I, I find often the the trajectory of a lot of women in historical fiction, which is absolutely fine because it's, you know, it's, it's, it's writer's choice. Um, but they, you know, they go from this kind of night, you know, if, especially when you track someone like this, like over an entire lifetime, they go from this kind of naive child and then they under, they, they learn the world and they understand it. And then they grow into this woman who's able to just perfectly control herself. And, and, you know, you, you have these, these images of like these, I don't know, these, these like Tudor women kept completely tucked tight. And then maybe they're in their bedroom and they like scream and then, you know, and they let out their rage and then like, you know, they button it all together and they go back about their lives. And Gruick is just one of these characters who never learns how to do that. She never kind of learns to, in, in kind of modern parlance, emotionally regulate. And I think there is this thing of the kind of the emotional woman and this, this idea that we feel very uncomfortable with in society of um, either a woman who expresses her grief a bit too um, too loudly or too openly or, you know, too big emotion or um, similarly anger. I think we really, really struggle as a society with the idea of the, the angry woman, especially if that anger is not manifested as a, like, calm, controlled anger, but it is instead kind of like a ragey thing. And that is, in terms of um, one of the many things about her character that I think makes her that ties in the research, the time, the, my personal experience, the play is just this woman who, who does have all of these desires and it's constantly thwarted and it's constantly, um, things constantly are getting in her way. And even though she keeps bulldozing through them all, she just, she has no, she has no filter. Um, and I think that was really, that was really fun to play with, especially because, especially when she kind of comes into, um, relationship with a character named Ardeth, who is that idea of, you know, she is very, she's a very manipulative woman. She's very, um, which is great. <laughs> um, and she is very controlled and she's kind of that more of that archetypal, like um, scheming, plotting woman. And Gruick is just always telling everybody what she's going to do, <laughs> which is not the, which is, you know, which no, it's not wise. And it does make her petty and it does make her all of these things. But I just think that that is, for for me, I love I love that, and I I think that version of her actually gels more with Shakespeare's character because that that kind of woman is a woman who then is you know it kind of loses it and falls apart because she's you know she's already in this kind of heightened emotional state. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, those, that is a lot of words, but but, but it's just it's been something that you know kind of 
this this interview is falling at a, at a unique time I've had some distance now from um, from publication. It's you know just been just over a month. I've not done an interview in a while, so I've had to had a chance to really like think about who she is and percolate and all the answers. You know, not that I was giving wrong answers before, but like the thing that just is standing out to me with some time and with some distance is is this side of her that probably I most identify with, which is just that I'm massively emotional. <laughs> And I read that you said that your kind of career as an actor has really helped you in terms of writing and in embodying characters. And I'm guessing from your kind of passion for Lady Macbeth that that has really come come out and, and you really feel that mm-hmm. about her. Do you think that has helped you, um, helps you create her as more than just kind of a woman that you, you found on, on the page in your research? Um, yeah, definitely. For, for me, personally I mean every writer will have their own process but I think you know <laughs> a kind of decade over a decade of inhabiting other people um in a way and bringing them to life has it definitely influences my writing um I think especially I found um both for, both I think in a in a good way um and then there are also pitfalls of that so I've, I've found recently in my second draft I have a lot of physical face facial expressions and like a lot of kind of showing what's going on on the inside by like you know the, the way that they're that they're standing or that you know like there's a real physicality mm-hmm. in it which which is fine but I think kind of learning that, that actually maybe that is maybe that doesn't serve me so well you know so they're so they're kind of they're both good sides and, and bad sides to it but I do say kind of the line that I often use is that I think I think most actors would make excellent writers um, because I think you can teach the craft of writing. You can teach how to craft a sentence and how to, and you know, and you can, you can read and you can, I do think you can learn to do that. Um, but what the sort of unique, um, I think the unique take that actors have is that it is our business to constantly be thinking about people's objectives and motives what mm. do they want how are they getting it what is standing in their way what are they going to do when they hit that obstacle how are they going to get around it and so that I, I think that 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 character approach is just so that's all I as a writer that's all I do all day long is just think mm. about what is she what does she want to see why isn't she getting it who's who's standing in her way, what's standing in her way, what is she going to do? And that's where that, you know, that's obviously, a, these are kind of the building blocks of creating drama. I often think that kind of character motivation and and when you're thinking about your characters in that way and that every scene should serve that motivation in some ways is one of the hardest aspects of writing. And I, mm. and I think that often as writers, we, we write to find out those questions. Um, so I mm. imagine that having that, kind of acting background really helps you explore the different options of what your character might be wanting and how they're going to go about it. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. 
Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. So how did it go from the screenplay and the the TV Bible and the pilot to getting an agent and the book deal? Did that happen fairly quickly? Yeah, so I was, I already had an agent. I had an acting agent at the time who also had um, some kind of connections with, with theatre and so she had some playwrights on her, her books and um, she had some screenwriters on her books. So I was actually represented as a screenwriter um, and well, you know when she got because she was getting all this feedback and, and giving it back to me so I, I wrote the book um in October between October and December of 2020 yeah 2020 um in lockdown and during the second lockdown and then took it to her and you know it was very much right place right time she kind of um I think it's okay to say this but she she she's sorry Lou if it's not she had one contact in the publishing industry um, I mean, she might, I'm sure she might, she might have had more, but like there was really just the one person, um, which was Katie Ellis Brown. And we went to her um, with this, with this book and just said, could you just, could just read this and just give us some feedback. Like we weren't, it's funny because I know now about, um, what do they call it? Edit and resubmit where they resubmit and something where they're, where you can send it into a publisher and they'll say, if you change this and this and this, we'll take it on. Yeah. or we'll think about taking it on or like I, we didn't have any concept of that this was very much like this was a friend of hers from uni and could you please like just tell us if there's something in this and she was very very kind um and read and read the book in January and sort of gave you know she's like this is where I think it's strong this is where I think it's weak um but it was very encouraging at the time and kind of definitely um there was kind of never a question that I was gonna edit it you know like there was never a question that there that you know she I think she really thought that there was something there so I sent so I did another so I did another batch of edits which I did over about four five weeks and then the story of actually how it got picked up Katie was doing um maternity cover at Bloomsbury at um at Raven at the, at the imprint um and we sent it to her and I remember it was on a 
this is like kind of one of those fun stories in publishing that you hear about I, I think but she we sent it on a bank holiday weekend on like the Thursday before bank holiday and she said um I think it was the end of April uh, beginning of May and she said you know I'm really busy this month but I'll get to this by the end of the month um I'll be like yeah yeah of course take your time and I sent it on Thursday and I'm pretty sure I heard back Tuesday um, and she had read it and she was pitching it to her team. You know, it was like kind of real fairy tale level stuff where she's pitching it to her team the next day and I needed to send a one page bio and like two more book ideas. And I was like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> I have two more book ideas. Um, and so then, you know, then we pitched it and um, and three weeks later we we got the contract through and we got the book deal at the end of May so it happened yeah it happened really really fast Mm. I think it's it's that funny thing about publishing and and it's frustrating I guess to hear but there are so many um little parts that you're like well this person had to be in this exact position Mm -hmm. work out well and it's you know there's elements of luck and uh, opportunity and yeah, mm. it's it's frustrating probably if people are, are struggling to to get a book deal, mm. but sometimes it is a case of right place, right time, and you can't plan yeah. for that. And you just have to hope that you're I mean, if you've got a strong idea like yours was, it makes mm-hmm. someone read over the bank holiday. It makes someone skip ahead yeah. or, or think, oh, I'm gonna put this to the top of top of my pile. And really I think it is that great idea or that really you know mm-hmm. amazing hook or they can already kind of envision the campaign that they're going to make for your book and and obviously yes. your book was so appealing in that sense and we're at a point where mm-hmm. kind of feminist retellings are so hot and everyone wants to kind of to see these stories that we know from a different perspective mm-hmm. so I think that kind of obviously played really well in in your favor. What's also quite exciting at the, at the minute is um, I, I love Greek retellings. I grew up on I grew up on the Greek myths. Um, I had a very one, weird and wonderful childhood. That I was learning about you know Odysseus and Theseus when I was about eight years old, um, and I and I loved that. But but we're starting to move away from that, and we're starting you know we've got um, kind of retellings, you know a lot of Shakespeare retellings. We've got some other. And we're, we're kind of moving away from that, and I I often see. Um, Lady Macbethed kind of if they're in a list of like retellings to watch or something like that mm. it'll be kind of one of the only ones that is not a Greek retelling and that's that's I'm not saying any kind of like I'm not making any judgment on that either for me or for other people but what I am saying is that there's I do think I was very lucky in that sense in that I kind of I feel like I kind of got in at the beginning of a trend which mm. which is one of those things that you can't you just you can't plan for and you I, I think um in my <laughs> my limited advice to other people and I think there's a lot of crossover in terms of the acting industry is you have to be authentic like to the stories you want to tell and you have to be authentic to who you are like you know to relate it to acting you can't go into an audition thinking oh well they want this kind of person mm. because it, they, because first of all they might not and second of all even if they do then that's that's not who you that's not who you are. It will come across. And then that person, that casting director will think of you as someone who you're not. So you really have to just be authentic, trust yourself and trust that the right door will open. And when it does 
for you, it will it will be your door. And similarly, I'm, I can only imagine that this is also true with writing. And you just have to write those stories that you are drawn to and that you are that, that you love. And you kind of have to not think about the industry, you know, which is which I know is easier said than done because everybody wants their stories and I, I have all sorts of obscure ideas that I'd really like to write and I'm like oh I really don't know what's gonna find that. <laughs> um but, but but yeah you know it is it, it is kind of the 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 stars aligned and and I was I was very fortunate and I'm very very thankful to have found myself in that position especially yeah with a character like Lady Macbeth you know a lot so much of the work was done for me because I don't have to I don't have to tell you like who she is because <laughs> most people at least have some idea of the character mm. so as we're speaking about the industry I was wondering in your kind of journey to publication since you signed mm. your book deal and now you're published has there anything that's happened or that you've learned along the way that you found particularly surprising or challenging that things that you've had to deal with maybe that you weren't expecting I know you are kind of <laughs> brand new to to publishing yeah. it was all a mystery but has there been anything that you've learned along the way yes I've, I've learned masses and I think it's it's really funny because um I was talking to Hannah uh who wrote God Killer she's um a friend of mine I saw her I went up to Scotland for my my book tour and we went and met up and had dinner and we were talking about how they need to have um I don't know if I can swear on this podcast yeah, you can swear, <laughs> okay amazing they need to have like um shit writers bingo cards where it's like uh, or like shit experience you know shit first experiences because because I think you you so often just get the the fairy tale and the everything so you know on this on this bingo card we have a square for like your first one star review and we have a square for like um a review about to be published in a newspaper on the day of publication which may or may not have happened to me and then you have like you know a square for you do an event that nobody shows up to and mm. um which which has happened and happens all the time I think that would that is I, I really dread that day if when it comes because that is you know it's never easy but like there are there are so many experiences like that and and um yeah Hannah and I had good fun trying to think about all the things that we would put on like <laughs> the bingo cards to kind of welcome new writers into the industry um you know and so I had you know I, I didn't I had no idea what to expect and there were a lot of there were a lot of things like that and I think for me I I, I feel kind of lucky in the sense that there were a lot of there were a lot of things that I didn't have expectations of because I just haven't been I hadn't even been in the industry long enough to google it you know like I hadn't I'd never even googled like how much to expect for an advance or um, you know, do you sign a one book deal or a two book deal? You know, like I didn't know any of that stuff. And then the few things when I started, when I did start to meet other writers and they were like, oh, this is probably how much you'll, um, it'll, uh, you know, how much you'll get if you sell, if and when you sell to the States. And then when I sold to the States, it was nothing close to that. And I was like, so every, even the little, the few expectations that I then did have was all it always massively under <laughs> underwent so I was like okay I'm just not gonna have any expectations um so there was definitely you know I, I think that was kind of a real yeah real blessing to not mm. to really not have any preconceived ideas I didn't even have any writer friends like I didn't even know anybody who was being who has been published even self-published you know not even self-published but you know what I mean like I know nobody who is published in any way um and that was hard at first because it was like, oh, what does this mean? Um, but I think definitely in the early days, it really helped me have those blinders on. So I wasn't, 
I was able to just enjoy the process and I wasn't thinking about that. Um, the one experience that I kind of did want to talk about actually, just because I'm sure it's not unique and it really threw me, um, was the lovely Katie Ellis Brown, who was just the biggest cheerleader and champion. She was the commissioning editor. She brought you know my book into Raven and was a massive champion, very enthusiastic as a person. I just absolutely adore her. She listens to this. Um, she was just doing maternity cover. So about kind of very solidly into the edit, we, we were kind of nearing maybe, you know, we only had one edit left, one or two. We'd done about three or four with her. And I'd really worked with her to change the, you know, to make the story better. And like tons, I cut loads of stuff and added loads of stuff. Um, and then she left. And so then, you know, my kind of my one point of contact at Bloomsbury was gone. And it was Allison, who I, you know, now I, I know her now and I, I love her and I love working with her and working on book two with her is just such a dream. But at the time, as a, as a first time novelist, it was really destabilizing because mm. I was like, does this, are they going to drop the book? Like, was, because I didn't, you know, I didn't know that like, there was an entire budget for this. Like, they're not going to drop the book, you know, but from, from my perspective, there's so much that we don't see and there's so much yeah. that we don't know about. And in my head, I was like, oh, I just had this one person who was really championing this book and I hadn't quite understood the scope of it yet and the fact that yeah there were people in australia who were already working on like you know at the time um you know marketing and, and stuff like that and it took me a, a while to kind of i think because everything did happen so fast and it was kind of such a such a fairy tale type thing i sort of just expected it to go away at any moment and i think that is even in, in speaking to someone like hannah who has a very opposite experience to me. You know, she's been in the industry for about 10 years. I don't know if people know that or are familiar with that, but she's written like six books before God Killer and God Killer is her debut. I think more than that. I think she's written like 10. She is so prolific. <laughs> it's incredible. Um, but, you know, even for someone like her, like there's, you know, completely opposite experience, but still that sense of like, this could all fall apart at any, at any moment. Um, and I think when that, when that switch happened there was this real sense of even and it, I feel so embarrassed even now to say it because Allison was also the biggest champion and she totally got the book and like was so reassuring and and was just has been absolutely incredible but there was definitely a time where I was like what if she doesn't like it or what if she doesn't get it or what if you know what if just because you you only have this one point of contact in a publishing thing and then and then and then when that goes it, it yeah it can it can be re really destabilizing and I think that's why you know it is really really important to have that relationship with your agent um because I definitely wait but I have the most patient agent in the world where I was just calling her and I was like they're just gonna hate me and like everyone's gonna drop it she's like oh my gosh woman <laughs> um no she's very kind but, um, you know, so there, so there were a lot of like little things, but mm. there were also, you know, there were a couple of like big things that happened that were kind of like, I, I, I found that far more destabilizing than kind of getting bad reviews. That wasn't, you know, mm. that, that wasn't really anything, um, you know, compared to that. Actually, I, I will say on the, on the subject of reviews, cause you, you brought this up earlier. It's like, I do find because um, I, I think I've stopped reading reviews now just because I'm you know I'm kind of now my head is fully in the second book but I, I was reading you know I, I do read a lot of a lot of the reviews 
And I find it so funny when people say the opposite thing, yeah. you know, where it's like, oh, this book is definite, like this terribly researched, you know, mm-hmm. like absolutely there's no idea what she's talking about. And then someone's like, this book is so well researched. <laughs> it, it makes me really, it makes me really laugh. I, or like, it, okay. I had one review that was like, this is the most perfect ending to a book. And then I had another mm-hmm. review that was like, this ending was terrible. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I actually, it's funny because I, I, I get a sort of perverse, um, I don't know if joy is necessarily the right <laughs> word, but out of, I think you have to, like every, every writer is going to have to deal with bad reviews in their own way. Either they're not going to just read reviews full stop or they're going to laugh them off or, you know, or they're going to use them for fodder for future books as revenge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah I, I did I found the I think the contradictory nature of, of reviews really helps um I, I bring them into perspective I think especially we, yeah with mine the two things are the the research like either someone thinks it's really badly researched or really well researched and then also just the character like some people really love her and I've had some reviews who just hate her like it's like I've written you know, a treatise on Nazism or something, you know, like the the the, the loathing that they have mm-hmm. for this character. Um, and I find that just from like a human study perspective, so fascinating that you can have people, you know, because we're all just people and we, it's all taste and preference really at the end of the day. And that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that that is, um, you, you know, you talk about challenges, I guess, in this industry. I wouldn't necessarily say, it was a challenge but it, it it's something to it's just something to be aware of and something that I find really fascinating of like when you do have you could have 30 good reviews and one bad review and for me it doesn't like tip the balances or anything but it def- that one review definitely gets more weight in my mind and I kind of I do always weigh it against other ones um, and there's sometimes oh Oh, that was it. Actually, this is this is. I think this is a fun thing as well. And and again, I, I'm not calling this person out in any way. Um, but the very first review that I got, I think actually maybe this is probably helpful for other writers listening. First of all, the very very first review I got on NetGalley was one star. <clears throat> um, and I kind of referenced this earlier, which again, absolutely fine. Like no hard feelings. <laughs> um, but I got a really horrible review that was published on like obviously just somebody really didn't like my book which is fine um but it was published on the day of like it came out the day that my book was published and I was tagged in it on Twitter by name and so yeah so you so these things do happen and and um it's fine but the with the one star review they (laughs) they compared me to Philippa Gregory and I was because they were like oh this is just like all that Philippa Gregory stuff and I was like that's actually like I know that you meant that as an insult, but I'm actually massively complimented <laughs> by that. So I think there's just there's always stuff like that that you just kind of have to learn how to. You really do have to learn to take in stride, and I think. So I know I've been saying a lot about this, but I do I do think it's important, and I I think as well actually being an actor, mm. you have, I have a particular unique take on having a thick skin, um, because, you know, people say things to actors that you wouldn't say to your worst enemy you know the people could be really horrific and vicious and it's getting so much better but especially like I'm in LA at the minute and um you know you hear stories about you know people saying well you're just too fat for this role like to their face like you know and Mm -hmm. and kind of really 
um, or, you know, you just, you have no personality, like, sorry, honey, like we love you, but you just have no personality and you're just going to have to, you, you have to develop such a thick skin. And so, you know, I, I think similarly as in writing, um, you just, yeah, learning to take that in stride is definitely something to, I think a valuable skill to learn very, very early on mm. is going to happen. <laughs> So finally, Isabel, please tell us a little hint about what you're working on next. Yes. So I, um, what can I tell you? I, have, I haven't got this down to the elevator pitch yet because we're only in the second <laughs> draft. But what I can say is that it's another historical fiction. Um, it is not a retelling. However, it, it borrows elements from a particular fairy tale that I, that I love. Um, it is set in the mid-1600s in Bern in Switzerland. Um, and it is told from two different perspectives from a young man and a young woman set about 15 years apart um, and it's about kind of primarily it's about a young woman who finds out that her father is a serial killer um, and it looks at uh, kind of the question of what do you do when you're confronted by evil do you run away from it do you confront it do you take matters into your own hands is there any you know is there any such thing as vigilante justice you know like there's all these it kind of explores these these big questions um but more more than that for me it's a really special story because my father is from Switzerland he grew up in this little alpine village um and kind of right in the middle of, in, of Switzerland and so it's been such a gift to be able to research the history of of this country and, and kind of um, we're not from Bern, but to, to, but to really, uh, you know, unpack the whole history of this particular city, which in the mid 1600s is, um, again, kind of a time of political upheaval. It's about 100 years after the Reformation. There are still scars all over the city of, you know, from the from the Reformation um, and from the that schism. There's a big peasant revolt that happens um, around this time. And so it's really it's, it's kind of bubbling with like the, the setting itself is already bubbling with quite a lot of tension and quite a lot of um of turmoil and so mm. to kind of put this story and to set the story at this time I think is a real I, I'm absolutely loving writing writing it and um it's just it's it's quite thrilling to me to be able to um explore this story in this setting well it sounds very exciting as well and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That was Isabel Schuler talking about her historical novel, Lady Macbethad, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 